Today's really fun episode of the Ryan Rosillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like sports, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. The unexpected, DeMarcus Cousins, rumor mill, day of. Um, I did not expect to see that. Although it's been reported that even though he's available to sign with teams for the Orlando bubble, that he is going to sit it up, which is probably the right call. However, um, it was just, it felt good to see a rumor. I was like, wow, a transactional rumor? Who's back? I felt back. So that was unpredictable. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized and actionable insights on your sleep, recovery, and daily exertion. With Whoop, you get a recovery score each morning based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance. You can use this data as an indicator for how to approach your day. As I've said throughout this, once you get it dialed in and you give it the 30 days, and then you'll kind of go, all right, you know what? Like the strain recovery things are off today. If I go really hard, am I going to have the same kind of workout that I'm used to having? And it all kind of adds up. It's it's pretty crazy. Like you'll just go, yeah, I, I don't really feel it today. And then you'll see results that aren't really what you're used to at, at better levels because your sleep's behind or you did something or you, you just haven't recovered enough. And so um, that's that's the part of it I think is, is really been the most fun and the sleep stuff. Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P is offering 15% off with the code Rosillo, R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O at checkout. Go to Whoop. That's W-H-O-O-P dot com. Enter the code Rosillo at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. Okay, today's podcast is going to be a little different. I, I don't want to talk about um, anything today except for movies. Um, so we'll be back on sports later this week. But he's a guy that I've met um, just being out in Los Angeles. He is, his credits are incredible. We got John Wick, produced that, Sicario franchise. The Town, 10 years ago, a ton of other stuff. So let's um, bring in right now a guy who's been out in L.A. doing a great job for a long time. Basil Iwanek. I need your help. I can't tell you what it is. You can never ask me about it later, and we're going to hurt some people. Whose car are we going to take? Massive credit list. So I don't want to leave anything out, but I know I was excited about the town, Scario franchise, the John Wick franchise, uh, a bunch of other stuff. And he's been at this a long time and he's been really successful. And it's Basil Iwanek, producer and a guy who actually started back in Philly at Villanova. And maybe this is why we hit it off so well. Um, you were originally going to be a basketball guy before you were this big time producer. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that was always the plan. I grew up in Jersey and uh, on the Jersey Shore, and high school basketball was huge. I went to this uh, all-boys Catholic high school called Christian Brothers Academy, and my junior year, we were nationally ranked. Uh, we had a, a six guys go Division One, including John Crotty, who went to UVA and ultimately went played in the uh, in the NBA. And um, I was the classic, like you know, Lehigh, you know, that kind of low Division One guy, but like an idiot. And I guess this kind of served me well being a producer. I'm thinking, <laughs> no, I, 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 I bet I could walk on to Villanova and I would see Raleigh Massimino all the time because he was there trying to recruit karate. And then my year, I'm just kidding, Mark Dowdell ultimately went to uh, Nova. And Raleigh was always like, yeah, man, we always get, you know, Penn and Wright and, you know, all these great walk-ons. You should come out and walk on. I knew the guy for three years. So I'm like, I'm going to go to Villanova and walk on. And I'll start by my 
midway my junior year. None of that clearly happened. <laughs> and then the first day I sh- first day I showed up, they're like, "Oh yeah, preseason practice is like in September at like six thirty in the morning." I'm like, "What? Isn't that illegal?" And then um, Raleigh wasn't around. Then of course she shows up, and I run over to him, and I'm like, "Raleigh, I'm here." Just like you said, I, I'm really excited. And he looked at me, he's like, who the hell are you? And I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> I don't think this is going to last long. <laughs> so at what point did you know, because I, I think there's anybody that's interested in you know film and TV and writing and producing and all that kind of stuff. And maybe you don't even know really what you want to do at that point. You just know you want in. You pack up the car and you get out to L.A. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was almost more what I didn't want to do. Like when, when you go to Nova... And I graduated in 1992. You either went into the Wall Street um, and business, whatever that meant, um, or a lawyer or a doctor. And I didn't want to do any of that. Um, and the weird thing was, I, I loved movies my whole life. Like, I'm the oldest of uh, four. My dad is only had me when he was like 22. So we were, he was like an older brother. We saw tons of movies when the VCR was um, invented. We would watch movies constantly. And I never thought in a million years that you could actually work at something that you actually enjoyed. And one day I came home um, over some holiday and I, and just to kind of mess with my parents who expected me to go to law school, I said, I want to go to USC film school. And I was expecting like a negative reaction. And, and in fact, it was just the opposite. They were like, you know, that's perfect for you. It's something you've always wanted to do. You've always loved movies and you're articulate about it. Go ahead. And that was really it. And I actually, when I drove out to California, I said, okay, I'll do this for three, four years, live in Manhattan Beach, you know, which you know well, and enjoy myself, probably fail, but who cares? I'll come back and then I'll get a real job. And that was, you know, that was, you know, 20 zillion years ago at this point. But yeah, I just drove out and I stayed with, I, I crashed with, um, with Bill and Oba friends who graduated a couple of years before me. This is before cell phones. So I just showed up and I slept on their couch for eight, nine months. So did you want to be an agent? Because you started at UTA and I, you know, I've had a couple of friends that are writers that go, well, I, I went to an agency just so I could read a million scripts and meet people and then meet people that was going to rep me because that was really the only way in. So I didn't know if that was something that you thought of at some point or you were just like, I'm using this. It's just like a lot of people do just some way in. But did you ever have designs on being an agent? No, but I don't also want to make it, make it sound like I had choices. In other words, <laughs> like my first job was I was like a production assistant on White Snake videos. And um, I thought like production assistants. Wait a minute. So you peaked early. I did. Exactly. <laughs> um, but by the way, I didn't know. What Wait a minute. Like video. the actual, like the piano and, and the girl on the piano type videos. I remember these yeah. from like junior high. Yeah. In your downtown LA. And I thought I'd be like right next to the director while he sets up shots. In fact, I was like three blocks away, making sure homeless people in traffic, you know, didn't rush through the, uh, to the sets, and it sounds cool, but when you hear the same song played over and over again for like 14 hours straight, over and over, you, you go insane. And so, uh, and then I worked for this company called Full Moon Entertainment, um, which was like Roger, like a Roger Corman type company. They made movies with like George Takai and all these other like transfers, four and five. And I was miserable, and my boss at the time, his name is Guy Brian 80s, who I, I really owe a lot to, he said, you should be at an agency. And I'm like, why? I don't want to be an agent. I want to be in movies. He's like, yeah, but that's where you'll learn everything. Because he would ask me, what do you want to do? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know what people do. I don't know what a producer does. I don't know what, like, when I was on set, the first day, be will cut an action. I'm like, I thought that was supposed to be the producer. I had no idea. And he said, like, go to an agency. You'll learn. You'll get the landscape. And it was. I tell everyone that comes out to LA, like, if you can, 
start as an agency in an agency. You learn everything. Everything. That's a good transition because I've always wanted to ask this question because I think most people don't really know what a producer is. Is it somebody who just has money? Is it somebody who raises money? Do they have anything to do with the execution of the script? Do they have any direction input? Like I read one of your quotes where you were like, you really only have a point of view as a producer, which also makes me think that that's you kind of getting out of the way, but that could be personal to you. And then you'll see EP stuff. I, I actually think outside of the business, there's a lot of confusion of what the hell the title even means. Oh my, I'm not kidding you. Every two to three years, one of my parents or my sister will say to me, tell me exactly what you do. I'm like, how many times do I have to explain? I, I mean, there are really two types of, listen, there, there are, let me start off with saying anyone could have a producer credit. You know, people who sometimes pay for the movie, it could be a manager or a partner for the actor or the director or the writer. Um, so let's put that aside because it's, it's incredible how anyone can get credit as a, as a producer. There are really two types of producers. There are the ones who are creative producers. They're the ones who are really the first ones in the last ones out. They're there every step of the way. That's, that's me. That's it's story. It's, it's, it's developing the script. It's picking the director then working with the director, picking the, you know, the cast, the heads of departments. It's being on set or if you, even if you're not on set, you're, watching dailies every day. You're involved in every cut of the movie. That's what I do. Um, I think the there's also something called a line producer. And what a line producer does, they do all the mechanics of it, like it's going to cost this much money and budgets. And, and that stuff, I, I hire those people. But I, my business is, my, my job has evolved a lot over the last 10 years, where now I'm also a guy who raises the financing for these movies. And I, that was a conscious choice, because for a long time, I was at Warner Brothers as a producer. And it was great, but they paid for everything. And I just kind of was just there to have a, my creative input. Now I'm an independent producer. And that the good news of that is I have upside, creative, financial. But the bad news is I got to find the, fin the movie, the financing for all these movies. It was really tough eight, nine years ago. Now it's much easier since I have some idea what I'm doing. The money part, uh, how frustrating is that where you... Like the sense I get from you know talking to you and then and looking at some of this stuff is that you have the creative part of you, right? You're not going to write, but you're you're going to read a script. You're going to have a sense of like, okay, this is what could work, and we'll, let's make some changes. But then also with your background of answering to the studio executive, who basically is like, we we need to make money on this, and yeah. it feels like one of those things where the artist is always like, they don't get it, they don't get it, and the executive is like, hey, you don't get it. Like, how do you play that character, not even a character, but how do you play that role in trying to make sure both sides understand each other? Because that seems to be a lot of what you do. It is. But you know what's actually astonishing to me and really, really, really shocking? How many directors, big time directors, and even actors, and when I say actors, I mean actors and actresses, do understand and have empathy for the people that put the money up. It's very rare these days where you have someone who's like, out of the hell with them. I don't care. I think I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think there's there's a romantic view of people going, ah, you know, it's all about the art. Like, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I don't. I think people are respectful of people of of, of of the money. They just are. And and I also think there's self interest, which is if you're if you're a director or an actor that has a reputation of showing contempt for the budget and for money, you don't work. And the moment you have a misstep, which we all do, your, your misstep resonates for a lot longer 
than someone who is respectful of the money. And, um, and then you have a fail and you just kind of dust off and, and, and go back up. But I do think, you know, it's, it's where it's the hardest is when you um, are coming up with a budget. That's when people get offended. You know what I mean? As the, you know, artists and myself too, because we think the movie's worth, you know, $35 million. And they'll say, no, it's worth 25. And we're like, but that's, we, you almost take it personally. You're saying like, that's like, this is the best we can do. You don't think we're as valuable as we do. And that's where it gets tough. And then, but once you find that common ground, I, I find that most people are respectful. Now, that's also something that I do. I'm very transparent. Like I talk to the filmmakers that I work with and I'd say, here's the situation. Here's the money we have. You and I are partners. We're in the same sandbox here. Let's figure this out together. And, um, and I've been able, I've been lucky in that regard. So you leave Warner Brothers because you just felt like, all right, I, I have more to do. And you start Thunder Road, which is your own production company. And that's, that's essentially what you've been doing, what, 15 years now? Well, yeah, I, I was an executive at Warner's. Um, I was like a studio. Like, I was like the guy that you're talking about. I was the suit. And then I started Thunder Road uh, at Warner Brothers. And I had one year where I did um, Brooklyn's Finest, Clash of the Titans, The Town, and Expendables. And in one I year, I remember that was 2010. 10, yeah. And I'll never forget. I remember it so clearly. So the town was um, was so flew so under the radar there. And when people saw the movie, I'll never forget. It. One of the executives said to me after they saw it, like. It's going to be good for Ben, but not for us. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, we're going to lose everything. We, we're going to lose all the money we put in the movie. That's okay. We love Ben. And we thought the movie was going to open up like 15 and open up like 27. And so, and so Saturday morning, I'm driving with my wife, and somebody from the studio calls me and says, um, like, hey, congratulations on the town. I'm like, thanks. And two seconds later, it was like, where's, where's Clash of Times 2? Like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I realized... I had like a, a brick, I, had like, I had a one minute victory lap on the town at the studio. And I realized that the studio didn't want movies. They, they wanted Clash of Titans for me, those kinds of movies. And I realized at that moment that I needed to have some, I wanted to be independent. I wanted to have a little bit more input on the kind of movies I wanted to make. Because making the town was one of the greatest, you know, year and a half of my life. Clash of Titans, as much as I love people involved, was, was a hell on earth on every level. All right. Why was it hell on earth? Because the movie is staggeringly expensive and you're shooting all over the world and half your cast, you don't meet until about two weeks before the movie comes out, which is the visual effects of these monsters. And it was, we didn't, we couldn't figure out the tone. The first, we reshot 40 minutes of the movie. Um, and then we decided to do like this 3D conversion, which no one ever did before. And we had, Jeffrey Kanzenberg come out and tell us that we were a bunch of crooks and criminals. It was just really unpleasant. And you hear these stories where, you know, as the worst part of being a producer is you never feel victory, you just feel relief. That movie came out in 2010, made $500 million. To this day, I just feel relief. I don't have any victory, feel of victory. And that's, that's an unpleasant place to be. And again, I have to say, the people that worked on Clash were amazing. The actors were great. The director, everybody were great people. But it was the anxiety over it was just staggering. So let's talk about the town then. Uh, what was your what's your favorite story? What, the story you're telling your buddies when they go, all right, give us your best town story. God, that's a good question. I think my favorite, 
I, I can't name the names of the, the of the actors. Um, ben wanted to he wanted to put this guy in. He never acted before in his life. Um, uh, great looking dude, great guy. Was he a Boston guy uh, or something? Was that oh, what Ben was? Hardcore, but just served eleven years in jail for. Um, and it wasn't for like a fight. It was for like possession of like submachine. It was something insane. And. Ben's like, I want to hire him. I want to hire him. He's great. And Ben was really respectful and is really respectful. And it got to the point where the chairman of the studio flew out and sat down with Ben and just said, Ben, we can't do this. We're a public company. You know, this is a really problem. And, and Ben's like, what am I supposed to do? This guy just came out of jail. This is his whole life. Like, this is such a disaster. I don't want to do this. And, and he's like, just put him a small role somewhere. Um, but he, we can't do it. It's a corporate thing. I can, I can get fired. We said, fine. He goes, you have a second choice? We do. Um, we hire him. All good. Ben comes in, closes the door. He goes, I'm going to tell you something. You can't tell anybody either. So you can't tell anybody. I'm like, what? The guy we, the guy we just hired, he's also a convicted felon. <laughs> I'm like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> I go, whatever you do, don't tell the studio. And we, we made the movie. Everything was fine. <laughs> but also, I mean, what's crazy about, about Boston was I, I was on in a van and the guy was, uh, the, the van drivers talked to me and he's like, yeah, I used to box. And I'm like, Oh really? He goes, yeah, I was kind of famous. I'm like, what's your name? It was Mickey Ward from the fighter. He was the, one of our van drivers. And you realize I was kind of famous, I know. <laughs> but that's the thing about, you know, making a movie in Charlestown with Ben, we were so taken care of the best group of people ever, like John Hamm, Renner, Lake Lively, Rebecca Hall, they were such good times. Uh, we had so much fun on that movie. We were in Fenway Park. Like I had, I saw every inch of Fenway Park. We did everything we can there. It was, a, it was a dream. It was like one of those dream movies. How hard was it to get baseball to sign off on all the stuff you were doing? Easier than you think. And it's interesting because really? I'm dealing with that now. And they're very proud of it. But I think, you know, John Henry and Ben are close. And that was a big, a big part of it. Um, they, they, baseball loved Ben because he was so pro pro Red Sox at the time. Um, it was uh, that was shockingly, and, and as I said, Nick Trotta at MLB did help us do it. it. It was not as hard as you would think. I've had much harder since then on things you would think would be a lot easier. Maybe it's just a fear, knowing that you know if you don't have a plan and you propose to use professional sports teams and leagues and this kind of stuff, and it's like, yeah, no, it's all a no unless you show us something that's worth us being associated with and i'm sure with ben its relationship with the red sox the city and then seeing that it's this is a great film and the cut and the edit and all these different things that okay all right baseball's ready to sign off on it so that's awesome um one other thing that i always love about this movie is that it's it's kind of the action movie disguised or really the drama that's disguised as an action movie and the action is there to bring in maybe more people to excite us but then next thing you know, we're at the theater and there's really only a couple action scenes and that's fine. Like I, I'd rather watch a drama than an action movie, but how do you handle trying to figure out, like we want to tell the story that is the actual story here, but knowing that some of those action scenes are what pay the bills. You know, we preview that movie. When I say preview, you know, the audience preview where you go into like a, a movie theater, you have a recruited audience. We pre previewed that movie probably five times. None of them went well. None of them. And the reason why, right off the bat, 25% of the audience was like, I'm going to reject it. I do not, I'm not going to root for 
bank robbers that shoot at cops. Like, I'm just not doing it. 25% gone. And so it got to the point where instead of getting, taking like kind of the hard data from the, the audience, we realized that we had to take the people that were just rejected the movie, got rid of them, and just figure out the people that didn't have a moral or uh, a moral <laughs> issue with, with rooting for these bank robbers. But we never had that great audience screening where we walked out high-fiving each other. And in fact, we actually thought um, our ending was a mistake. So we reshot an ending with Ben surviving, we, um, which was a great scene. Um, me, I'm sorry, Ben getting killed. Ben getting killed, right. Great scene. We, we thought about, you know, so you have to end up with her. We, we, we were misdiagnosing the issue. And, um, and ultimately, that's the strange thing. Nobody seemed to care when it, when it came out. But it was, a, it was a big, it was definitely a, a, a big challenge. And I think it's what we were kind of characterized at Warner's as a quote-unquote smaller movie. Because it was like, oh, it's about a bunch of bad guys. But here's the irony, not to jump ahead, but I remember um, uh, Denis Villeneuve on, uh, on Sicario. He's, it was uh, our first preview. We did it in New Jersey, Clifton, on, on Sicario. And he's like, what should I expect? I've never been to a preview before. And he's like, well, right off the bat, you're going to get 25% of the audience say they can't root for this movie because Benicio Del Toro killed the kids. Like, just right off the bat. And you have people walk out on that scene. Even though it's at the end of the movie, you have people walk out. He's like, get rid of those people. And then whoever's left, that's our audience. And I was wrong. It was statistically, that scene with Benicio Del Toro killing the kids was statistically the audience's most favorite scene in the entire movie. And in fact, there were more people that said the kids and the guy got off easy because it was a quick kill while Benicio's daughter was dipped in a vat of acid than, than they deserved. I was shocked because the town, I thought, because of the experience of the town, you'd have a third of the audience go, Oh my God! This is these are brutal, tough people. I I can't root for them. But no, that wasn't the case. Yeah, maybe it was because Renner gets lit up. You know that Jem was the bad yeah. guy, and that he gets lit up. So you're like, okay, now I have I have my reward. Were you brought in? Because you know, for those that understand it, Prince of Thieves is Chuck Hogan book, and that was a screenplay. And then Ben was involved, and he has a writing partner who is terrific. It, I just, Aaron, yeah, yeah, right. Love Aaron, Aaron. give his last name just so that I don't. Aaron Stocker. Right. So. Were you, it feels like you were almost brought in because of your personality, maybe more so than some of your success, that they just go, Basil's like, you're going to be a good fit with Ben. Was that what it felt like? It was almost like prearranged buddies? Oh my God. It, it's so funny because one of the things you learn as a producer is always beware when a studio puts you on a movie, because most of the movies, 90% of the movies we have come out of our own development slate. And Matt Riley, who was an executive at the time, said, we need a producer on the town you're going to love Ben. You must know him. And I'm like, I don't know him. I'm like, I, I weirdly enough, because we ran in similar circles and played basketball and stuff, but I just didn't know him. And I show up uh, in Boston to, to uh, the scene for the first time. And he looks at me and I can tell he's just like, oh, of course, this is the guy they sent. They sent a guy that's like me. And we laughed about it. But no, it definitely was. It was a, someone, you know, who at least their perception was could go toe to toe with him. Although he was the most user-friendly collaborative director you could ever imagine. But there's no question that I was, you know, I was the East coast sports guy kind of going, okay, you're going to, Ben will respond to this person, which actually in retrospect was absurd, but you know, that definitely was true at the time. 
Ben's personality now at this point, like he's he's established, you know, it's it's 15 years basically since, well, you know, whatever, round down a little bit since Goodwill Hunting. He's done all these successful things. And directors, depending on on what kind of directing style you have, like they're not obviously they're very different people. Some are super artsy, some are almost antisocial. What does it mean to have somebody who's already that confident in himself and then knows he's the star, so he's not proving to everybody he's a star that's also directing this film? Like, how different is that dynamic than, say, oh, some of the standard guys that have never been in front of a camera? I, I think people, it's very easy to look at the town in retrospect and go, that was a no-brainer, or what an all-star cast. Ben was at a very, very, very low point in his career. Um, and very low. And in fact, the original, um, the original um, cast that he kind of contemplated, he was going to play the Frawley part, the John Hamm part, and try to cast like a Wahlberg or a Christian Bale and stuff like that. And so he was definitely um, down on his, on his, at least the perception was he was down on his luck, which made everybody work. So, which why is, I'm telling you something, it's, it's why that process was so great because we all liked him so much and we all want to see him like come go back to where he was. Cause we saw what he was as a filmmaker and as an actor and as a guy and everybody just on that movie was, was so happy that it succeeded because we wanted it for Ben. And I know it sounds like bullshit, but I'm telling you it was we were Everyone was just like, this guy deserves to be back to where he ultimately became. And you know, John Hamm at the time was, was probably the most, the hot, quote unquote hottest guy in the cast because he was off of Mad Men. Renner, um, her locker didn't come out yet. So Jeremy was just a cool, interesting character actor. Blake Lively was coming off of uh, Gossip Girl. And so there wasn't, you know, Rebecca Hall was the, the class act. I think that, um, you know, it was a really underground, not underground, it was a below the radar cast, especially for a big studio. But, um, you know, Ben, you know, it was. The strangest thing about it was just him directing and acting at the same time. That was just kind of surreal, but we got through that pretty quickly. More with Basil here in a sec. But during this time of social distancing, connecting with friends over beer today looks pretty different. As the original light beer, Miller Lite has always been there to bring people together in real life through Miller Time. Miller Time is a moment for people to come together in real life to connect over a few beers, but having Miller Time is tough when you can't be with your people. Most excited to connect with probably the lifeguards. Yeah, probably the lifeguards. Miller Lite is the beer that makes Miller Time possible. Miller Lite is the original light beer that tastes great and is less filling, which means it won't get in the way of enjoying time with your people. Um, trying to make it back east at some point here before Orlando starts up. Not sure if I'm going to be able to pull it off. Really want to, but I know that I do want to point at a couple of my buddies and just send them a couple tall, cold ones. Miller Lite, the original light beer. While you're home, enjoy a classic available for delivery today. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories and 3.2 carbs per 12 ounces. All right, you mentioned Sicario. Uh, it is one of my favorite movies as far as like my moment in theater, the border crossing, the anxiety that I felt sitting next to my buddy. The music is perfect. It's just the tension. And I remember at the end of that scene, like I, I almost felt like, have I not... Did I breathe in the last 10 minutes? Like it's it's one of my favorite scenes ever. But as you alluded to before, Benicio's character, there were different versions of the script. And that's something I want to get into because Taylor Sheridan, how terrific he's been with, with the stuff that you've worked on with him. But 
him killing the drug lord's family, originally that was going to be different. So you, you said like, hey, can we get away with this? But what was that going to be in the original ending? Um, the original ending was he uh, shoots the drug lord, um, says to the wife, um, move to a small town, put your kids in college, you know, figure your shit out or I'm going to come back for them. Um, and that was in the script up until about a week and a half or two weeks before we shot the scene. And it was Benicio and Denis came up with the idea and why they should do it. Um, I thought it was brilliant. Everybody thought it was brilliant. The studio at the time, Lionsgate picked up the movie kind of uh, right before we started shooting. They were great. They just said, shoot us, shoot it, you know, two ways. You know, one where, you know, one the way that's in the script and one that the way you want to do it. Of course, the way we shot the one in the script, like out of focus and like that, you know, it was like unusable. Um, and Taylor, God bless Yeah, how did him, Taylor feel about it? He refused to write it. He refused to write it. He's like, that's not the character. And what's a really, and which is really funny is um, Denis, myself, and Eric Lee, who is the president of my company, we're in his office and he's like, we got to write it out um, to give it to the crew. So they know, you know, special effects and actor, you know, they just need to know what it is. And so we wrote it out just like on like, you know, um, just us. And Denis, you know, is French Canadian. So he doesn't, you know, he speaks great English, but that's not his, his forte. I, I, I have great dialogue to me just eludes me. I can't write it. And so we kind of just wrote like, in the most basic things of what they're supposed to be saying. And we were supposed to tell Benicio, like what do you say in your own words? But no one told Benicio, we see it shot. And it was exactly how we wrote it. <laughs> but the thing is great is Benicio doesn't talk a lot in the movie. So it was just very simple. You know, it wasn't trying to be flourished, but no Taylor was furious, furious at us. And I have to say, this wasn't Taylor Sheridan. Mr. You know, man of letters, successful guy. This was Taylor Sheridan. Nothing produced, one foot out of the business, and he was still pissed off. You got to respect that. You know what I mean? You got to respect. Did you have to handle that conversation? Yes, but of course, being a wuss, I sent Erica in there first. Erica is incredible. When I know there's going to be a horrible reputation, horrible um, conversation, I send her in. She takes a lot of the punches, and then I come in, and they're usually either punched out. Or like kind of half punched out. So by the time I get to them, and if I get to Taylor, there was no volume in rage. It was just the words. But um, but I said to him, like, listen, you know, you gotta have faith in us and and have trust. And um, you know, it was it, he's. This is why. By the way, this is why. Um, I said to Taylor, you should direct Wind River. He's like, why? Because every time a director or an actor changes a word, you're like, this is this is bullshit. Like this, this cannot be. Here's why. I'm like, you should direct it. Um, and he did. And he became Taylor and director. Because I literally, I gave him that idea because he was just so difficult with any changes that I do with his script from anyone. It was funny. That's a big change though. And I think one of the other things that you and I have talked about in the past, and I was watching some of your panel stuff in, God, that stuff's just funny to begin with because I started psyching myself out on how to pronounce your name because I watched so many different panels where everybody was getting it. <laughs> it was just different guys constantly. I'm like, wait a minute. Do I not? I thought I knew him a little, uh, but there's, 
There's a question where the moderator asks you about Sicario and says, you know, it would have made much more sense to have Emily Blunt's character be be a man, and you just shoot him down immediately. You're like, actually, no. Like, no. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And I think it takes away from her story where what I was really worried about in the theater at the very end, where I was like, and again, spoiler alert for everybody, if you haven't seen Sicario yet, I don't even, I don't even want to be friends with you, but... I thought in that final scene, I was like, oh, she's going to have the redemption thing. That's how mm-hmm. they're going to do it. She's going to shoot Benicio. And I was like, I don't want that to happen because really it was her. And it wasn't about a male-female. It, it was it was whoever that character was was going to be victimized. It was victimized like in every corner of, of the, that story. It was like she was taken advantage of here. And so it wasn't really about that. And it was it was just a more real ending instead of the wrap a bow up on it and make you feel happy on the way back to your car. And... I wonder if there was anything, it sounds like the Benicio thing was a much bigger deal, but if there was ever any conversation about how that ending feels incomplete, but to me, incomplete was much better. Oh, it was the argument. Um, When we were trying to get the movie financed um, and studios were passing on it, they were all saying the ending's too nihilistic, too bleak. And in fact, a major studio, when they nameless, unfortunately, wanted to do the movie. And he's and the the studio said, "You don't you don't have to touch the script. You don't have to do anything." And it was a great deal. We were about to take it. And at the last minute, they said, "I just got to see. I want to hear Emily's character and her worldview. You know, her worldview counter to Benicio's worldview. And I want to see recognition in, in Benicio's eyes that maybe she has a point and maybe she's right." And that was the only time Denis, who is a total gentleman, was like, absolutely not. 100%. I'm not even going to talk to my actors about it. No chance. That is not this movie. This movie is Benicio. It's a land of wolves. And unfortunately, um, at this moment in her life, she's not a wolf. And that was the biggest argument. And the reason why most of the people passed on that was that ending. That was, that was our only real bump along the way other than killing the kids but that was more of a production thing at a time but that was when there were moments when everyone was passing i'm thinking myself how am i gonna get this movie made thankfully we this this company called black label stuck with us and made the movie we kept that ending yeah i really it would have changed and the whole idea that you need benicio to acknowledge her point of view at some point well that's what we're there for yeah you know like we the audience we're we get like this sucks for you. This sucks everything that you just went through, but it felt a lot realer than her shooting him in the back. And I was so worried. I'm sitting there and I'm like, don't, don't do it. Don't do this thing. And I was like, yes, they didn't do, they didn't do the thing that I think so many other movies would have done. And that's, you know, in music, there are rules. I was talking to a a musician buddy the other day and it's not a name drop. So there's, there's nothing cool there, but he liked, (laughs) he likes country. He hates rap. I like rap. I'm coming around on country in certain ways. And I said, you know, the funny thing is that both sides could say, well, okay, Zannies and bottle service. Like you guys say the same shit over and over again. And you'd be like, well, what are you guys doing country? It's a sixer and a pickup and some girl. you <laughs> Like it's not like it's the same beats. It's the same things, but it's in how you tell the story. And I feel like there are these rules so much with movie making is it because people are afraid to break the rules? Because then when the, the rules are broken, it's like, oh, wow, this is so amazing. But are the rules there in place in a way because that's really what we do want, is that we don't want to be challenged when we're just consuming a story. 
I don't, you know, that's a really, really good question. I think you fall into complacency as storytellers because of these quote unquote rules. I don't, um, I, I think that, I, I know that I became a much better producer when I started listening to my instincts and not trying to intellectualize something that was emotional. And I think that these rules are, there isn't enough challenge to them, not because there are defenders of the rules, but because there's a, laziness is probably too critical of a word, but it's a complacency. It's a, it's an easier thing to kind of fall into these systems. Now, I think that's different in family movies, certain family movies and, and television. And, and yes, I mean, I have kids and they're, I, one of the reasons why I love these, the older Disney movies or even new Disney movies, like, you know, even, you know, Toy Story, there is, um, I know what I'm going to get now it's super elevated and it's funny within the structure, but I do understand what I'm going to get. And that's okay. There's a comfort to that. But I think that in other, in so many other movies, people are just, they're afraid to put themselves out there because if they fail, it's them making that decision. And, and I, I think you go back on some comfort of rules, which I don't really understand. Failures. Um, you, you made a, made a great comment and something where you said, if you bomb in a movie, everybody knows, but if you fuck up a bank transaction as some investment guy, like nobody, you know, maybe your world knows, but it's, it's not on rotten tomatoes for the rest of your life. What's the, uh, I don't know if the right question is what's the biggest failure, but what's what's the movie where like in the process you go, nope, like this isn't going to happen, and it's just something you know that bothers you maybe still or maybe it was just a lesson. No, I, I, I um, and again, these aren't just people I don't know. These are people who are like friends and family. They always, if there's a movie that comes out, they always say like, "What were you thinking? Like, did you try to make a bad movie?" And I try to tell them we go in there and everybody. You know, when you're in there, you think, okay, we're doing as smart as a job as we're doing on Sicario. Or I think the one that really broke my heart was this movie called Seven Sun. And you had Stephen Knight, who wrote like Peaky Blinders, and he's a great writer. You had Jeff Bridges coming off of his Academy Award. You had Elisa Vikander in one of her first roles. You had uh, Julianne Moore. Our, our production designer is won like six Oscars. We had John Dykstra, who did, you know, Star Wars as our visual. We had just I would sit in these production meetings and go, look at this group of people. This is incredible. And we had a lot of money to make the movie. And I got to say, within like three weeks, I'm looking around at the costumes and some of the choices. And I'm like, we're doomed. Like, we are doomed. And I was involved in all these conversations. And I think that one broke my heart the most. I think in retrospect, the, the, the director was in over his head. And if I had, if I was a little bit further on in my career, I probably would have said, freeze. Let's figure out maybe we need to move on from the director. Um, I should have done that two, three weeks in. Now, I do feel a little bit like John Bolton, who comes out and says, oh, yeah, Donald Trump's. And I'm like, where were you at during the event? So I get anyone. I, I sound like a total wuss in retrospect, but that one could have and should have been great. And I feel like as a producer, I let down. The studio, I let down Jeff Bridges, who I really try to get into the movie because he's one of my favorite all-time actors. That one killed me. That one crushed me because it could have been great. There are others where I'm like, oh, in retrospect, maybe that wasn't a good movie to make, but that movie could have been great. Let's talk John Wick. Uh, 
the entire franchise has been a monster. And I would say legend has it that early on, you did not think that was going to be the case in the first one. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I cannot emphasize enough that, you know, I just told this story about, about Seven Son, that we're day six of shooting. We're a Keanu, we haven't even shot a gun yet. <clears throat> and it's been five days of Keanu uh, moping around his house after his wife dies. And I'm like, what are we doing here? And then we finally have uh, some dogs and I'm looking at like the kind of the dog stand in our stuffed animals <clears throat> as we're connecting. I'm going, this could be one of the worst movies I've ever made. And <clears throat> we made the movie. We had fun time making it. Uh, I remember thinking to myself, okay, I'll come out or go straight to video or whatever it's called now. I knew Sicario was going to be good. <clears throat> and we, we showed the movie to everybody. The same movie that came out. We showed the movie to every single studio in town. And they all passed. Um, and not only did they pass, I'll never forget this, the, 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 the head of acquisitions for Fox at the time. I'll never, see, I know I'm not supposed to say names, but I, this one furious me. <clears throat> he, was staying like, he was sitting like in the middle of the aisle. And he walked out halfway through the movie. You know when someone walks out and, ha- and everybody has to stand up and, it's, and it gives people permission going, hold on, this guy's walking out. Maybe I can walk out. It, it, we lost it. So everybody passed. Lionsgate, God bless him, bought the movie um, for no money. No money up front. They gave us a big part of the back end. Um, but they put together an incredible trailer, an incredible marketing campaign. <clears throat> we, were, we went to South by South. No, no, we went to Fantastic Fest in Austin. And they went bananas. And I was like, oh my God, we have, like, we're going to come out in the theater. Like, to me, it was like, we're going to come out in the theater. This is incredible. And we came out, and a lot of it was, you know, our Rotten Tomatoes score was high, and and they were making fun of Keanu, and and, because he just came across off of all these bombs. It was a little, like, kind of, you know, who would have thought Keanu would make a good movie? It was a little kind of snarky positivity. And then it grew in the afterlife and the ancillaries. And it became what it became. But I got to tell you something, Ryan. I, I swear to you, it was right after that movie ended. Ken was like, "I'm going to television." Because uh, he thought it was going to be that bad. He yeah. thought it was a like. Did you guys think as soon as you were done, as everybody was passing, like this is a flop? No, we. But he did. Movie, I mean, he was looking at other career options. That's that's the part where the disconnect. I don't. I just help me follow that part of it. I, I think because it was. The, the, the target for us to make it work was so small in terms of tone that when we wrapped, I think everybody, including Chad Stahelski, who's now directing the other ones, he went right to his second unit job in South Africa for the Sasha Baron Cohen movie. So in other words, he like went from directing a movie to go, I'm going to be a Sasha Baron Cohen second unit action director in South Africa. <clears throat> um, I think that we didn't know what we had totally. And I remember when we previewed the movie for the first time, um, I'll never forget, we're in Orange County. And the audience, you know, the, the, you know, the wife dies, the dog dies. And everyone was like, okay, what's, where, what's this going? It's a little slow. And then all of a sudden, uh, John Linguiz- um, J- Michael Nyquist calls John Linguizamo's character. He goes, I heard you stopped my son. He goes, he stole John Wick's car and killed his dog. And if you remember, Michael Nyquist goes, Oh, the entire audience went fucking bananas. I mean, they went bananas. They laughed so hard and they like cheered. 
And I'm like, oh my God. And everything we did after that point, everything they're in. And that's when we realized that there was a, we, we hit the tone right, that we were trying to make a movie that we knew was kind of absurd. And when you do that, sometimes you could actually, you think you're so clever, you're making fun of yourself. And we hit the tone perfectly. That was the thing. We didn't, I mean, we didn't know when we were making it. We knew the action was going to be cool, but we had no idea the tone we hit. So basically, once the dog is killed, the audience is just in. Went nuts. Went Like you could nuts. do anything you wanted. Anything you want. And the whole question of like, because that's the other thing too. There's a buy-in in that movie, which is, as someone, are they gonna, he's going to kill 85 people because the dog was killed. That's just nonsense. Like we didn't know people would buy into that, and people bought into that. And I have is to that say, the I, death, I to, is that the, the total? Is it eighty five? It's like eighty five. The second John Wick two was like one hundred and four, and like John Wick three is like one hundred twenty six or something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we have posters. We have posters, fan posters that has every single kill, what weapon they were killed by, and where they were shot or stabbed or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, it was. Um, that's what I'm like. Uh, you know, it's funny. People ask me about um, COVID and like, you know, when is it going to, are you optimistic about it getting better in terms of, the, of making movies and people going to movies? And I always tell them like, you have to be an optimist if you're a movie producer. Every day you have to wake up and go, this is going to be a great day. And I have proof. Like John Wick, a movie that was like at the end of our bench, somehow has become this behemoth and it set my myself and my family up for a long time financially and nobody thought that. And so you got it every day. I know it sounds ridiculous. I read a new script. I'm like, maybe this is the next one. <laughs> okay. Uh, that was good. That was, that was really good because I remember and that's not usually the type of movie that I like. And then it was just something about it. And I liked that it was slow at first, like, all right, nice apartment, nice house, nice car. You know, yeah. we're like, are they really going to kill this dog? And you're like, oh, wow, these guys went for it. And then it, it's it's weird. It's weird how movies work where whatever your expectations are for it. Like The Professionals, my favorite case study in expectations is that the way The Professional was sold, I remember I was in college and it was like the trailers were twice as fast as speed, you know, the nonstop from the beginning to end. And it's it's not it's like an art house movie. And this, the first 20 minutes, my roommates and I are like, this sucks. <laughs> like, this movie sucks. Like because we were we were conditioned to believe that it was going to be kind of a cheesier action thing. And then I left and go, that's that's one of my favorite. It's still to this day. It's one of my favorite movies of all time because I, I right after once I figured out what it was, I'm like, this is amazing. Gary Oldman, I think it was like the first yeah, time I, mean, I really Oldman understood is- yeah. The greatest performance ever. I mean, it is Gary he's, Holden. He's unbelievable. And and it's just all of these things are perfect. And there's all these different non-traditional relationships that that just make it all up. And it's got that New York City rawness to it that felt that felt great. But, but you know, it's funny because I you asked, you asked a question before, which I, I forgot to answer, and it kind of goes on what you're saying. Uh, put aside the John Wick movies. If you look at a lot of the movies that we've done. There are people in rooms talking, and then there's like three, I'll say two and a half action sequences. And what, what I've done as a producer, especially when you're independent, you don't have a lot of money to make these movies, you, you really spend all the money on the action. And so the movies actually punch above their weight. They feel bigger than they are. 
And you asked about the town. I remember on Brooklyn's Finest, we didn't have money for any action. And they sold the movie and it just felt like a drama. And so in the town, we all said, we got to make this action look great. Because we know in every TV spot in the trailer, it's going to feel like an action movie. You look at Sicario and Soldado and Town, even Wind River, and a couple of movies that we have in post now, there's only a couple of action scenes, but we they got to be cool. And it's kind of what you're saying about professional. You know, it's the action still, like when it happens, when he starts taking those people down the apartment building, it's when he's hanging out. It's awesome. It's stuff that we still reference as like touch points. We try to get John Monod in every John Wick. We could never get him in it. But there's more coming, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do some rapid fire here. Five questions. It's time for five questions. Who is, you know what, just off of the Wick stuff, give me your favorite Keanu story now that you've worked with him this much. You know, the stories of Keanu being a good guy are 100%, 100% true. And... If you had no said false, I was like, this podcast is going to be amazing. <laughs> no, no. I think my favorite Keanu story is <laughs> we have a lot of um, developed meetings at his house, at this beautiful house. And he's lived in his house since the Matrix. And so it's on the um, map of the Hollywood stars route. And so all the windows are open. At, like, you know, you, it, it, it's on the hillside. And so you're having these meetings. They hear, oh, and to the writers, you know, Neo, Keanu Reeves. So, but we have, I don't know why this was so funny. His, the, the doorbell rings and Keanu goes, hello. And he's like, hi, it's, it's, it's Helga and, 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 and Suzette. And we're from Denmark. We want to speak to Keanu. Uh, he's not here right now. Um, come on. You know where he is. Is this Keanu? Uh, no, it's not. Who is it? Uh, Brad his house man like <laughs> Keanu's voice like we know it's Keanu he's like oh, I'll call you right back and, just, and we're going Keanu you're, you've been Keanu Reeves for 35 you still haven't figured out how to do this yet and he goes oh, I don't I mean just he's that guy. he is just he is one of the most all time like listen my, my, my son just broke his hand my, my son about six weeks ago broke his arm fell off a bike 12 year old kid screws plates pins in his arm surgery during COVID one of the worst things you could ever imagine um, he was devastated. He's a big baseball player. And I emailed Keanu and I'm like, dude, he loves you. Can you just, um, send him a text? And then literally five minutes later, there's a video that he sends me for my son that literally would make you cry. It was one of the greatest videos ever. And it was like, I'm, I'm all I can say is he is as good as a guy as, and I've been to three movies now. We're having more movies. He's as good as a guy as it gets. Okay, is there an on-screen guy that's actually like an, a tough guy where guys are like, he's actually like, don't, if, you have, if you're going to get into an argument with him, you know, just, just a heads up. You mean physically? Yes. Like a, a kick, your, kick, your, kick your ass type. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm sure actors aren't going around beating people up, but I'm just, No, what I mean, is, in terms that, of like, the, like men's men, real men, um, Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford, I did two movies with him. Um, and he was as tough. Uh, by the way, I'm not talking about working with, cause he was, he's a total pro, but physically just built like a bowling ball. And even at his older age, he threw himself down steps. It was like his, it was a movie called firewall. And, um, 
his uh, his stunt uh, man was Terry Leonard. Our stunt coordinator was Terry Leonard. Terry Leonard was his stunt double during all the great Raiders movies, especially in, including the one where he like goes under the car and, and uh, the truck and Raiders Lost Ark. And Terry Leonard's um, knees were so shot that one day you would have a like a brace on one knee and the other on the other knee. And so the and so Ch- so um, Harrison kind of did and designed and did all the stunts. And I couldn't believe how tough this guy was. Now everyone talks about Keanu and that Keanu is tough. I mean, Keanu does all that stuff. It's incredible what an athlete Keanu is in terms of shooting, stabbing, driving cars. But in terms of physically, Harrison Ford is, I've always said this, like exactly how you hope Harrison Ford would be is exactly how he is when you meet him. Like you walk away going, there you go. That's Harrison Ford. He is Indiana Jones. Is there a rule when you're pitching a movie that for the lead, if it's going to be a big movie, that you have to say it's going to be either Pitt, DiCaprio, or Christian Bale? You know, yes. <laughs> DiCaprio, we don't, we don't even talk about because he works like the same three. The, the names, it was, uh, but it, and it always changed. It always, it's always Pitt, Matt Damon, Bale. And then there was a time that we call I call it Hardbender. It was Tom Hardy, Michael Fassbender for everything. Um, and so they, they float in and out. But the Mount Rushmore is Brad, Matt Damon, Leo, and yeah, Howie Bell. And when Bell and, and, Lee and Damon get cast like the same time in the same movie, I'm like, come on, like, give us, loosen up for some of us. I mean, Jesus Christ. Because there was the longest time where between the Marvel movies and everything else, like all these guys weren't available. So it was awful. All right, final one. On your credit list, it says insomnia. Yeah. With Pacino and, and Christopher Nolan. I think it's before people understood like some of the stuff that Nolan was going to do. Do you have a Nolan story or is that credit? I, I don't know if the credit, because I can't figure out with some of these credits. I think it gets back to some of the EP stuff where people are like, oh, that guy won a Grammy or, or not a Grammy. Well, He'd be like, oh, he won an Oscar. And be like, well, what was he, an EP? Like, I don't, I don't understand it. So I, um, I was an executive at the time at Warner's and I'm living in West Los Angeles and my friends and I go into the promenade to watch college football on a Saturday. Um, have too much to drink. And I'm like, I'm going to walk home. Like, and it's a far walk. And I'm about halfway home. And I'm like, this is getting ridiculous. I go into this theater called the New Art Theater. And they're playing this um, Swedish film called Insomnia. Um, I watch the movie. And I'm like, God, this is such a cool idea for a remake. So... Um, I pitch it to my boss. I kind of make it sound like it's like Lethal Weapon. Um, we get the remake rights. He figures out what it's about. And he's like, I don't, there's no chance we're ever making this movie. You have no money to, 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 to hire a writer. So hire a scale writer. I hire the, the wife of one of my colleagues, who's a comedy writer, Hilary Sutz. And she writes Insomnia. And right off the bat, we get, Jonathan Demi and Harrison Ford, coincidentally. And it looks like we have them, especially Jonathan Demi. And then Demi passes. And unfortunately, what happens at studios is a lot of broken hearts happen. In other words, like everyone will be so excited about a certain version of the movie. That version of the movie falls apart. And you can never get the executive or the studios around to like another version, you know? And so Insomnia went sideways. Um, I watched this movie called Memento. And 
and it didn't come out yet. It was, it was out. And I was like, it, it's funny about Memento. I, I really liked it, but I thought, God, this is such a, it was like a cinematic trick. Like I didn't find it emotional. I, and we, um, we hired Nolan and then Memento came out, blew up. I leave Warner's to become a producer. Um, genius that I am. And, and the only, it's so funny. There was a, there was a period of time for like a month that I kept a journal. Like, I don't know why I did it. And it happened to be the time when I first met Chris Nolan and I had dinner with him and I'm like, I don't know where this, I, I, I found my journals. Like, I don't know why this guy is so self-assured, but like, he's going to be a huge director because he, he's so, he's already in his mind, not, there's no arrogance. He was the most self-assured man I've ever met in my entire life. And the thing about Chris, God bless him, is he remembers everybody that was there early on in his career. So I could be at a, a room with all these famous fancy pants people. When he sees me, he will go out of his way to um, make me feel warm and home and, and make me feel comfortable because he remembers everybody that helped him out. And that's the thing about Chris. And conversely, I think he also remembers everyone that also didn't help him out, which is probably bad for a lot of people out there as well. That's, oh my God, I can't believe. So basically, if you hadn't gone to watch college football and had a ton of beers and walked home, insomnia is never made. You know, I got to tell you, you know, I, I hate when people like do this like kind of self, you know, this kind of fake modesty about luck. It is <laughs> so much about luck. You know what I mean? Just so much about luck. I've had so much luck in my life and my career, small and large. And, you know, you just can't, at a certain point, you just kind of, you roll with it. I mean, you, you still work hard. You still do everything. But, man, I've just had some things where I'm like, where even some of my friends would be like, damn, you are, you're a lucky bastard. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> I am, I, and I, and I, embrace it. And I do not. And I, and I thank God for it every day. That was awesome. I, I can't thank you enough, man. Uh, I appreciate My pleasure, it. Ryan. And I know, uh, we'll have more things to talk about in the future. With, uh, all the I'm a huge fan of you, of, of you guys. I can't tell you. It's finally, I'm, you know, I'm at the Jersey shore. So we moved here a month ago. We have a house on the shore. We're here for the whole summer. And I told everybody this weekend, I was doing this. And it was like the only time my friends here actually got excited. They could care less about all the movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell them thanks, man. That makes me feel great. I love today's pod. I hope you guys did too. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Let everybody know. Um, and then we'll be back on the sports the next one. All right, so be safe, and we'll talk to you in a couple of days.